I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn for the last time to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 28. This morning we will be looking at the final five verses. It's interesting, I was thinking about this time and I reflected upon my notes and in October of 2002 we began our study of Matthew, October 2002. And today marks the 143rd exposition of Matthew's Gospel. And today we come to the climax of this life-changing journey in Matthew's Gospel. Certainly there were other times during those years that we departed from Matthew to look at some other things, but for the most part we've been in Matthew these years and we have discovered that the purpose of Matthew's Gospel is to prove that Jesus Christ is the King. He was the Jewish King and Messiah of Israel. He was the Son of David. And we see that repeatedly in the Old Testament passages that Matthew uses to link the Lord Jesus Christ with all of the promises of the long-awaited Messiah. And of course, we also see that because of who Jesus is, we are called to faith and repentance in Him. We have seen His kingly credentials documented in the very opening genealogy. We have seen the glory of His Shekinah when the angels came and proclaimed His birth on the hillside in Bethlehem. And we have witnessed the obscurity and humility of His birth. And yet we saw Him even as King when the Persian kingmakers came to give Him homage. We heard the herald of the king, John the Baptist, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And we marveled as we watched the Spirit of God descend upon Jesus in his baptism. And we heard the Father say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We saw him gain victory over Satan in the wilderness. We were amazed at the king's authority as we listened to his Sermon on the Mount. We were awestruck by the miraculous power that he demonstrated when he proved himself powerful over sin and over Satan, over disease, over nature, and indeed over death itself. Then we learned of his glorious plan of redemption and marveled at the commissioning of the twelve ordinary men like us. We've been convicted and comforted by his parables concerning the kingdom. And in his Olivet Discourse, we both trembled with fear over the coming judgments as well as rejoiced with the coming glory that is ours, all of those of us who have placed our faith in Christ. Then we bowed our heads in in horror, and we've wept as we watched him suffer and die on the cross at Calvary, and then rejoiced once again with joy inexpressible as we saw him rise from the dead. A resurrection that guarantees ours. And now, 
before he ascends back into heaven, he commissions his disciples and, and us to continue his work, which was to seek and to save that which was lost, as he said in Luke 19. And that is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel, an effort that is so filled with mercy and grace that literally, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, it is something that the angels are overwhelmed with. They, they long to look at this whole plan of redemption. Indeed, dear friends, the quintessential purpose for every Christian, for our very existence, is to glorify God. And He is glorified most when He graciously redeems hell-bound sinners and reconciles them to Himself. The greatest demonstration of the glory of God is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we glorify God most when we devote our lives and our resources in evangelizing the lost, seeing people come to Christ, seeing them come to a saving knowledge of who He is. And indeed, I would say that there is no greater priority in life than glorifying God by being His, other than being His representatives and sharing the love of Christ to a dying world. And since man is hopelessly unable to save himself, we preach that salvation is all of grace and we believe that the gospel is revealed to us in those doctrines that most faithfully exalt God's sovereign purpose to save sinners and in his determination to save his redeemed people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to his glory alone. And we see that up around these walls, do we not? And so this is the climax, my friends. This is the pinnacle of Matthew's gospel. This is the sine qua non, if you will, of all that Matthew had to say. And if you miss this, you've missed the whole thing. You've missed the whole point of what the Spirit of God says to us through Matthew's gospel. So let's read the text, and then we'll begin to unpack it a bit here this morning. Matthew 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There are four essential elements necessary for us to discharge the duty that the Lord has given us here in this text. Four elements that I would like to present to you this morning and have you somehow carve into the granite of your biblical understanding. We must be, number one, faithful to obedient worship. Secondly, we must be devoted to the Lordship of Christ. Thirdly, we must be committed to a clear mission. And fourthly, we must be driven by a fearless trust. 
Now, we will go over these in more detail for those of you that are trying to take notes. But let me ask you, if I were to quiz you right now and say, regarding these four elements, how would you define them? Being faithful to obedient worship, how would you define that? How about being devoted to the Lordship of Christ? What does that mean? Being committed to a clear mission. Being driven by a fearless trust. Well, unfortunately, I believe that most Christians would say that being faithful to obedient worship is something like showing up on Sundays and maybe closing your eyes and swaying back and forth and holding your hands up in the air as you sing to some very emotional music. But friends, it's far more than that. Most Christians have no idea what it means to be devoted to the Lordship of Christ, especially in these days of apostasy where Bible doctrine is considered passe, if not arrogant and rude and divisive. And these days, people really don't know what the Lord has asked us to do. Therefore, they don't know how to really follow him. And many people don't care. And most Christians are clear to the idea of having a clear mission, an unambiguous mission that we have to carry out. And sadly, I believe that very few people are driven by a fearless trust because most Christians are not engaged in a battle where they simply could not survive if they did not have the Lord to empower them. So, this morning we examine these four elements in light of the Lord's great commission to us. First of all, let's see what it means to be faithful to obedient worship. Notice verse 16. It says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, I'll give you the context here. Would you consider that it would take about a week to get up to Galilee from Jerusalem? And when you consider all of the events that transpired in Galilee and even the trip back to Jerusalem later on for his ascension from the Mount of Olives, and we know that it was about 40 days before he ascended back into heaven, according to what Acts 1, 3. Therefore, this commissioning that we're reading here would have happened approximately 20 to maybe as much as 35 days after his resurrection. Now, you might also want to keep in mind that he was speaking probably to about 500 people, not just the 11 disciples here at this point. Remember, Paul indicated in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were uh, a group of about 500 believers that the Lord met with, and we believe that this would have been that group there in Galilee. Now, also keep in mind that most of his followers have not seen the resurrected Christ. Most of them now are still filled with fear, and uncertainty, they're thinking, my, what are we going to do now? They lack a sense of direction, perhaps uh, lack motivation. And they're probably filled with a bit of self-pity. They're probably kind of down in the dumps. They're depressed. Their whole world has come crashing down, right? And I believe there's a great lesson that can be learned even as we pause for a moment and look at what's happening here. Ask yourself for a moment, what should you do when your world comes crashing down? When everything seems lost, when everything's falling apart, what should you do? Should you 
run in there and turn on the television, put your thumb in your mouth, so to speak, curl up in a fetal position and sleep the days away because you're just so depressed. I just can't be motivated here. Is that what you should do? Or maybe you should go out and spend money, buy yourself something that'll make you feel better. Or maybe you should go to someone, some counselor, some therapist and have them say, oh, you know what? It's not all that bad. You're really a pretty good person. Come on, cheer up. How about doing this the next time your world falls apart? How about becoming faithful to obedient worship? Notice that's what's happened here. That's what God told them to do. He said, I want you to proceed to Galilee, to the mountain, which I've designated. That's what I want you to do. No explanation why. All we know is in verse 10, it says that he is going to, um, to see them there. There they will see me, he says. Friends, let me digress for just a moment. When you feel yourself sinking in the quagmire of depression, when you feel yourself overwhelmed with a sense of life isn't fair and I'm angry or maybe you're feeling guilty or, or you've got some life-dominating sin, you feel that, that all hope is lost and everything is dark and everything is lonely, and having talked with thousands of, of people over the years, that, that's what they describe. Whenever you feel that, what you must do is anything and everything you can to run to get into the presence of Christ. You've got to come before Him so that we can behold the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will see Him primarily in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 4, the Spirit of God tells us through Paul, For God has said, Light shall shine out of darkness. And it's the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We can't go to a designated mountain to see Him, but we can come to the mountain of the Word and we will see Him. That's what these people did. By the way, this was the whole theme of John's gospel. In John 1, beginning in verse 4, we read that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So keep this in mind now. God knew that those dejected disciples needed to somehow see the risen Christ so that they could become faithful to obedient worship. So here you have this large congregation of people, probably about 500 people, beleaguered, fearful, confused, maybe doubting, depressed, and they proceed to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Precious people. Can't you imagine what, that, what, what must have been in their hearts? Jesus has told us to come here. I, we haven't seen him. We've heard rumors that he's been risen from the dead. All I know to do in the midst of my sadness and my sorrow and my confusion, is be obedient to the simple thing that He's asked me to do. And so I'm going to go to the mountain. And beloved, that's what it means to be faithful to obedient worship. They were obedient to the simple command. And it put them in the pathway of the divine presence of the living Christ. Notice what happens in verse 17. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some were doubtful. Folks, this is an electric scene. Can you imagine the inconceivable burst of emotion when somehow Jesus comes up over the top of the ridge or comes out from behind the rocks? Can't you imagine the people would, would have wept with joy? They would have fallen on their faces and the women would have cried aloud because that's what women do. 
And the, the people would have been overwhelmed. It's Jesus, you see. And suddenly all of the confusion and the, and the, and the sorrow and the depression and all of that stuff, it, it's gone because suddenly you're in the presence of the living Christ. Beloved, never underestimate the awesome power and the unspeakable joy of simply being in the presence of God. Never underestimate that. There is no joy that can compare, no bliss of equal share than that of standing face to face in the glory of His grace. What an amazing scene. Now, naturally, some of them, as the text says, were doubting. And I'm sure if you're kind of in the back of the crowd here or somewhere over on the side and you see somebody coming out and, and you're, you're skeptical of everything anyway because your world has been totally smashed, you're wondering, I don't know, is that, is that really Jesus? Is that really Jesus? And, you know, usually when things are too good to be true, they are, right? You know, they're, they're false. But knowing their doubts, the precious Lord Jesus in verse 18, it says, He came up and spoke to them. He came up and He spoke to them. I, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with the intimacy here. The, the, the loving initiation of the glorified Christ. I can see him somehow moving through the crowds to somebody back there who's doubting. And he knows the omniscient Christ. He knows who they are. And he moves towards them and he looks them in the eye and he speaks to them. He came up and he spoke to them. And as I think about this, this is not like the unapproachable, whimsical, capricious, mysterious deities of the pagans. This is the intimate Lord Jesus. This is not someone that is hard to know or hard to understand. He's going to come up and look you in the eye and He's going to speak to you as He continues to do through His Word and through the power of His Spirit. So He came up and He spoke to them. And dear friends, the reason He did so is because these people were faithful to obedient worship. They did what God had asked them to do. They showed up. They, they just showed up. To adore Him and to praise Him and to hear Him. They were obedient. They were available. They were ready, willing, and able. Therefore, He appeared to them. He came up and He spoke to them. It's so sad. So many Christians never show up. They never show up. You, you don't see them when the Word is taught. You don't even see them in private showing up before the Lord when they can humble themselves before His Word. They're just not available. And when you're not available, guess what? The Lord is not going to be able to speak to you. There was a woman that I remember dealing with some time back. She was a woman who was notorious for her explosive outbursts of anger. She was a real hothead. She had many bouts of depression. She was suicidal at times. And she had been diagnosed as a manic depressive. She was on some antidepressants. And after a while she got off of them, she felt like they weren't doing any good. Uh, a very close relationship fell apart. Fiance left and so on and so forth. And somehow or another the Lord brought her to me. And I remember sitting down with her and one of the first things she was telling me is, I think I've lost my salvation. Obviously, 
completely clueless about what Scripture teaches about salvation. But knowing from Galatians 5 and other passages what the deeds of the flesh are, okay, I knew that if you looked at her life, you could see the deeds of the flesh. And we know it according to Galatians 5 and other passages that when you have those deeds of the flesh, it's primarily because they're not walking in the Spirit. They're not surrendering to the Spirit of God as He reveals Himself to, through the Word of God. And so, knowing this, and knowing where I needed to go with her, I asked her, can you describe to me your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And kind of at some level, I'm, tr I'm wanting to prove to her that she's not showing up. Okay, this is the idea here. And her answer was very defensive. It was very caustic, as you can imagine. And she kind of hee-hawed and hemmed around. And her answer really was as shallow as water on a plate when it comes to describing a relationship with Christ. And I also knew that she seldom went to church. And when she did, she attended a church that was basically an apostate church. So she was not getting any spiritual nourishment. And I figured rather quickly that she was probably not even saved. And when I began to approach some of those subjects, she became furious. And I remember sharing a passage with her that it, in Proverbs 29:22 says, "An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression." In other words, if you see anger, you know that that's the tip of the iceberg. And so we began to look at some of that, and things began to go south very quickly, shall we say, in our conversation. But one of the things that I tried to share with her, that I would share with you, is that when you habitually yield your body to various sins, ungodly choices, you eventually, the Word of God tells us, become bound by those sins. Romans 6.16, 6, for example. And as you become bound by those sins, you become that sinful person. And I remember telling her, Dear lady... Your issue is not that you're manic depressive or you're this or you're that or whatever. The issue, according to God, is that you were a fool. And I quoted her the passage. And I said to her the verse in Galatians 6-7 where God says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And she, was, she had sowed the wind and now she's reaping the whirlwind. You know, I see this all the time. People struggling with some life-dominating sin, yet they refuse to be obedient in the simple things. They refuse to show up. I mean, certainly she needs to show up, first of all, to be saved. But even beyond that, for Christians, you know, lives that are filled with, with, with sorrow and guilt and confusion and, and again, life-dominating sins, relationships falling apart. And you wonder what the answer is. How about... Showing up, being faithful in obedient worship, running to a place where the living Christ can speak to you, running to the place where you can be in the presence of His glory so that you can hear from Him. Well, notice what He said to them in verse 18. In verse 18 and verse 19, He says, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore... Now here's where we come to the second element that is necessary for us to discharge our duty. And that is to be devoted to the Lordship of Christ. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, 
You see, at this point now, Jesus is assuring the congregation that he is the sovereign, supreme monarch over the universe. And by the way, we see this theme all through Scripture. I think of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, where we read how the authority was given to him by his Father, who has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is what? That, that, that he's Lord. Therefore, in light of this, he says, I want you to go. What an incredible encouragement this must have been to those beleaguered saints. They were facing an impossible situation in their mind. I mean, in that day and age, in that culture, even as it is in many cultures today, it was hard enough just surviving as a Christian, much less going out and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. That was really a scary thing to do. You are literally taking your life in your own hands at that point. You've got a message that alienates and infuriates most people. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that the gospel was to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to know that you are obeying the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I mean, suddenly the odds are in your advantage, right? I mean, if you stop and think about it, suddenly it's not even a fair fight. We are more than conquerors, right? Through Christ. And dear friends, please hear this. Unless you live consistently with this truth, namely that we serve the sovereign, omnipotent ruler of the universe, Unless you live consistently with this truth, it will never have any meaning, nor will you ever have any power. You see, Christianity is not for some pusillanimous pansy that just wants to kind of quote a Bible verse every now and then and sing a little hymn and just kind of show up at church every now and then. Dear folks, Christianity is a call to arms. And anyone that is afraid to go into battle for Christ is not worthy of the Lord. Anyone that is afraid to wield the sword of the Spirit to be able to parry the blows of the enemy, to go out and do battle in proclaiming and protecting the truth, is not worthy of the Lord. Anyone that is afraid to be rejected by family and friends or afraid to somehow get their feelings hurt, what did the Lord say? If any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In fact, in Matthew 10, you will recall that Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, but I came to bring a sword, you see. And then he went on to say that if you love me more than your father, more than your mother, you're not worthy of me. If you don't take up your cross. If you don't follow me, you're not worthy of me. And unfortunately, in our kind of cavalier Christian culture, we are content to just kind of wander around and really not get into battle with, with anyone regarding the gospel. 
And I'm not saying you go out and pick a fight. But folks, what I am saying is you stand up for the truth and you preach it with boldness and with clarity, without compromise. Beloved, we serve the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. In Revelation 5, verse 5, we read that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Remember the the seals of judgment. And in Romans 14, verse 9, he is the Lord of the living and of the dead. In Acts 10, 42, he is the righteous judge whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. That's why he's saying to them and saying to us, don't be afraid. Devote yourself to my lordship. Be committed to following me. Make a conscious choice to take up arms and follow the master. And how do we do that? First of all, by submitting to the Spirit of God as He reveals Himself through His Word. You've got to know His Word and be obedient to the Word. We, we don't go out and strap bombs on ourselves and blow up innocent people. That's not how we do battle for the Lord. Instead, what we begin with is by submitting to the Spirit of God through His Word. Living out the truth of the Gospel. And then, as we know the Gospel and as we're living the truth of His Word, we're able to, secondly... Wield the sword of the Spirit with great precision as we go and battle error and protect the truth. And then we, thirdly, march on our knees in prayer. So he says, go, therefore. And what are we supposed to do? In verse 19, he says, I want you to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This leads us to the third essential element necessary for us to discharge our duty. Not only must we be faithful to obedient worship and secondly devoted to the Lordship of Christ, but thirdly, we must be committed to a clear mission. You see, friends, there is nothing mystical here. This is not something ethereal or or esoteric or mysterious. It's a very straightforward, unambiguous charge. I want you to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now I ask you, is this the priority of your life? Are you committed to this end? Let us see your check stubs and I can answer that for you. Let us see your calendar. And how you spend your time. And I can answer that for you. Let us see the list of men and women and boys and girls that are on your prayer list. And I can answer that. Let us hear your private prayers. Let let me hear the music that fills your mind. And I can tell you where your priority is. Let me see the type of literature that feeds your soul. And I can answer that. Let us see the ways you suffer and you sacrifice for Christ. You see, friends, obviously God sees all of this. And I fear the sting of that lash falls on my back as well as yours. So often we write a check to missions and we say, that's enough. Or we show up every now and then to attend Sunday school or church and say, that's enough. Or we... Pray before meals and occasionally pray in a prayer meeting time and say, that's enough. 
But friends, that is so different than what the Master is asking us to do here. The Master says, I want you to go. I want you to go. In fact, to get technical for a moment, the, the term that is used here is actually a Greek participle. And it's actually translated having gone. And so this is more of an assumption than it is a command, believe it or not. It's a very powerful statement. Literally what the Lord is, is, is saying here is that he is assuming that any true believer who understands the enormous sacrifice that was made to purchase their redemption is going to be faithful to obedient worship. They're going to be devoted to the Lordship of Christ and they're going to be going. They can't help but go because they're so excited for what God has done in their life. After all, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So he's saying, having gone, therefore, make disciples. It's like he's saying, this, this is a foregone conclusion. <laughs> this goes without saying. Any thrice-born child of God is going to be so filled with, with the, the love of Christ and the mercy of Christ and the grace of Christ that love is going to be abounding more and more. They cannot contain themselves, so they're going to be going and they're going to go not just to the Jew, but to the Gentiles, to all nations. That's what he's saying here. And having gone, what are they supposed to do? Well, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to make a clarification here because there is some false doctrine that goes around from time to time. It's very prevalent in our southern culture here. A false doctrine that says that Salvation is really an act whereby grace is dispensed. In other words, you're not saved until you're baptized. Sometimes it's called baptismal regeneration. This is a tragic error. Baptism literally means here to, be, to immerse in water. It is an act that has absolutely nothing to do with salvation. There is no dispensing of saving grace here. And those who make an association between water baptism and salvation must jettison the most basic principles of hermeneutics in order to support their position. And I might hasten to add that any time you see anyone committing a Herculean, Herculean effort to somehow torture a text to make it fit their system in one area, rest assured that you will see the same type of exegetical gymnastics committed in other areas as well. But please understand that God commanded baptism to accompany salvation, not to procure it. It's one's belief in Christ as Savior that, gives, that, that saves them, not being immersed in water. Jesus made this so clear in Mark 16, 6. And there's so many passages here. I'll, I'll give you a couple here. He says, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. You see, friends, baptism is, is merely a public testimony stating that one has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and is willing also to obey the Lord's command to publicly announce their faith to the community, to the world, and say that I identify myself with the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism alone has never saved anyone. Peter also made this clear at Pentecost when he answered the question, what must I do to be saved? And in Acts 2.38, he answered it. He said, repent 
and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Repent, metanao, the the, the original language, the Greek word, and and it's the idea of, of, and it's a very powerful term, it's the idea of having a radical change from going in one direction and turning and going in another direction. A change of direction, a change of purpose, a turning from sin unto God. That's what you've got to do to be saved. So he says, repent. That's the answer. What must I do to be saved? And then after that, he says, and then let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, repentance is one thing. But to be baptized, especially to those people to whom Peter was preaching, that was something else. Because think about it, you could repent and that could be something very private nobody would know about. But now all of a sudden, you want me to be baptized? You want me to publicly tell all of my family and my friends that I am a follower of Jesus of Nazareth? You want me to say that in front of everybody? Do you know what that will cost me? It may cost me my life. That's exactly why the Lord has commanded us to do that. Not that we would die, but that we would stand firm and tell the world that we are not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the book of Acts, forgiveness is linked only to repentance. It's never linked to baptism. Moreover, the Bible describes some who were baptized who were not saved. We see that like in Acts 8. And it also describes others who were saved with no mention of ever being baptized, as we would see in Luke 7. And so all through Scripture, we see that salvation is solely by faith, faith alone, not some ritual. Romans 10.10 says, with the heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. There it is. So Jesus calls us to go, call people to repentance. And then be baptized, which is synonymous with becoming a disciple here. He's saying, in essence, I want you to ask people to publicly affirm their love for me in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as if to say, because of my newfound faith, I want everyone to know that I am a recipient of God's grace and his mercy and his love. And now I have been made one with the triune Godhead. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But friends, the mission of evangelism also includes more than going and baptizing, but also, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You see, true disciples of Christ are are more than mere converts. They will be learners of the Word of God and teachers of the Word of God. They're going to teach their children. They're going to teach their spouses. They're going to teach other people within their community, within the church. That's the commandment here. And that's going to take places, place in, in Sunday school classes, in, in, in Bible studies, in discipleship groups. And it's going to come from the pulpit. It's going to come through writing, through music, and so on. You see, this is to be the lifelong preoccupation of every true believer. And quite frankly, it's going to be something that a true believer longs to do because you're so excited about what God has done. And it's not to say that everybody is going to be a teacher. Not everybody is gifted in the sense of being a public proclaimer of the word. But certainly we all have people to whom we can minister to, that we can preach, that we can teach. 
And we can support other ministries that do that. It needs to be the passion of our heart. And what a joy it is to see people come to a saving knowledge of Christ and then to watch them grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. I've been here about ten years. And I've watched some of you over that whole ten years. Some of you have come in at other levels or other times. And, and, and it's just a wonderful thing to watch how so many of you have grown in Christ. To watch your children come to faith in Christ. To watch them grow in Christ. It is a thrill. It is the joy of my heart. That's what the Lord asks us to do. By the way, remember Jesus' words to His disciples? It was a few weeks earlier in the upper room. He said in John 14, verse 23, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My Word. You say you love Christ? Do you keep His Word? If you don't, you better reevaluate your love for Christ. If anyone loves Me, He says, He will keep My Word. And My Father will love him. And we, referring to the triune Godhead, will come to Him and make our abode with Him. How about that? You want the presence of the triune Godhead within your very existence? Then keep His Word. He goes on to say, He who does not love Me does not keep My words. And the word which he hears is not Mine, but the Father's who sent Me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, now catch this, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, folks, this is a wonderful promise. Mothers, when you're teaching your children, you need to keep this in mind, that the resident truth teacher, the Holy Spirit of God, lives within you. And He is going to bring to remembrance the things that He has taught you. Now, here's the problem. If you have not been in His presence and He has not been able to teach you much because you are too lazy and too undisciplined to study the Word of God and to make it a part of your life, He's not going to have much to bring to remembrance. All right? So you need to submit yourself to the Word of God. And then as you teach others, He will bring that remembrance to you and also help you in the various trials that we're all going to have in life. What a wonderful promise. But back to Matthew's Gospel, notice what else the Lord says. Not only is He going to teach us and help us to teach others, but verse 20, He says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Beloved, this must be a promise that you hold very, very close to your heart. Because herein is the wellspring of, of, of Christian ministry. You see, every faithful Christian who is faithful to this great commission of, of going and, and, and baptizing and teaching, any Christian that is faithful to this knows the enormous obstacles that will be theirs as a result of proclaiming and protecting the truth. The inevitable rejection and ridicule, persecution, and sometimes it can be severe. But again, he's saying here that as the sovereign ruler of the universe, I'm going to be with you. I, I, I'm going to be with you the whole way. I don't care where you go. I don't care if, I go, if you go to Africa, if you go to Europe, if you go to Nashville. And I don't know which of the three is worse. He's going to be with you. And friends, you'll never know the power 
of the risen Christ until you're willing to suffer for Him. You'll never know that power until you're willing to suffer for Him. And because of this, fourthly, you're going to be driven by a fearless trust. You'll not be able to discharge this duty unless you're driven by a fearless trust. You see, here's how the flow goes. When you're faithful to obedient worship, as these people were, and then devoted to the Lordship of Christ, and as they became committed to a clear mission, then in order to carry it out, they had to be driven by this fearless trust. You see, this is the perspective that we must have in order to carry out the Great Commission, in order to preach the gospel to a lost and a dying world. I am with you always. Literally, that means I'm going to be with you all the days of your life. That's what that means. Every day of your life, I'm going to be with you. Even to the end of the age. And that's a reference to His second coming. That's when the age, this age will be over. When I come to establish my earthly kingdom. That's the idea. So I challenge all of you to examine your heart in light of our Lord's great commission. Are you faithful to obedient worship? Are you devoted to the Lordship of Christ? Are you committed to a clear mission? And are you driven by a fearless trust? Well, I want to close with another powerful motivation that causes us to heed the Lord's command to go, to call people to repentance, to teach them all that He has commanded. And that powerful motivation is the little four-letter word, hell. There are many haunting texts in Scripture. And perhaps there is none more haunting to me than the Lord's words in John 3.36. He says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And then also in Matthew 25.46, the Lord says that in, in essence, unless these people repent, Jesus said, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, it's heartbreaking to think that so many people I know and so many people that I love are going to go to hell. And perhaps some of you in this room today, like the parable Jesus gave about the rich man and the poor man in Luke 16, remember? The rich man was a very religious man. He was absolutely certain for a number of false reasons that he was going to go to heaven. And he woke up in hell. As we study Scripture, we see that most of the people in hell will be people that were quite certain that they would have never ended up there. Very religious people. Of course, in our age of apostasy, with our newly invented God that just loves everybody, the smiley face Jesus, as I call Him, this type of God would never send anyone to hell, is the thought. No God could be that mean and vindictive. And whenever I hear that, that is a certain indication 
that a person doesn't understand two things. Number one, they do not understand the holiness of God. And I confess I don't. And they do not understand the heinousness of sin. And I confess I don't. I see some of it. But what I see is a small fraction of what God sees. Jesus said in Matthew 10:28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both body, both soul and body in hell. Now I know some are quick to say that the word destroy means to annihilate, to cause something to cease to exist. You know, sometimes I wish that were true. <laughs> I, I have to confess that if I knew that the worst that would ever happen to people that reject the gospel is that they would die and all of a sudden go out of existence, I guess at some level I could relax a bit knowing that that's the worst that they would ever experience. Just extinction. But friends, the Word of God says something very different. In fact, by the way, the word destroy in the original language is never used anywhere in the New Testament to describe annihilation. That is wishful thinking that people impose upon that term. It does mean to kill, to bring to nothing, to render useless, to lose, perish, to be lost. But it's never to go out of existence. Moreover, such an interpretation is inconsistent with other passages of Scripture. The Word of God tells us, and here's the motivation for me for evangelism. I mean, it's, it's one thing, yes, I want to obey the Lord. He says, I want you to go. Well, that, that's enough right there. But friends, there's another motivator, and that's hell. Because the Word of God tells me that it is a place of weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. In Luke 16, again, in that parable, it's a place of endless torment and agony. A place of utter separation from God. There is no hope. There is no relief. In Jude 7, it describes it as a place of punishment of eternal fire. It's the idea of, of a fire, of something different than we would know. A fire that will not be able to consume, but to inflict pain. In Matthew 8:12 and 22:13, Jesus describes it as a place of outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the idea of a place of utter banishment, utter abandonment. There's nothing to bring relief. There is no hope. There is no relationship. There, there is utter isolation. Infinite loneliness. Now, folks, I ask you, is this where you want your children to go? Is this where you want your wife or your husband or your mother or your father to go? Or your friends or your neighbors? Are we going to be so callous that somehow all we want to do is just kind of veg out in front of our televisions and go to work so that we can make enough money to improve our lifestyles? Or are we going to get serious about a lost and a dying world that's going to hell? Word of God also tells us in Revelation 14:10 it's a place where people will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And it says and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night. I can't tell you the number of times number of times 
awake in the middle of the night and I pray for loved ones who I fear are going to hell. In Mark 9, 48, the Lord says that it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's a quote from Isaiah 66, verse 24. A place where the worm will never die. And old scholars and theologians have believed for years that this is a reference to the torment of a fully informed conscience. where people will endlessly throughout eternity understand how they have offended a holy God. There will no longer be any sense of, well, I didn't deserve this. They will know precisely what they deserved. And to wake up in the middle of the night and to see those faces and to hear those voices it's a haunting thing. Daniel 12, verse 2 is described as a place where people will awake to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Can you imagine that? You've played the church game all your life. You've said, oh yes, I'm a Christian. And then you awake and you find yourself in hell. And you awake to a place of disgrace and everlasting contempt. By the, word, by the way, the word contempt in Hebrew is a word that refers to something that is, that is absolutely loathsome. Something that is utterly despicable. Something that is wretched. And the idea here is the people in hell and their isolation and in their agony and their torment will see themselves as that wretched. Revelation 14.11 says they will have no rest day and night. The great Puritan John Flavel said, and I quote, the, conscious, the conscience becomes the whip that must lash the sinner's soul in hell. The seat and center of all torments. And why does God send people to hell? Back to the parable in Luke 16, it's very simple. You remember that the rich man wanted someone to go warn his five brothers. It says, lest they also come to this place of torment. And the answer was, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, let them hear of them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament, they don't listen to that. Neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Beloved, again, please hear me. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's our, that's our only hope. And sinners go to hell because they refuse to hear the Word of God. They refuse to hear it. And sinners must be told what's in the Word of God. They must be told about the holiness of God. 
and the sinfulness of man. They must understand that all that man is and all that man does is fundamentally offensive to God. And that man is absolutely incapable of saving himself. And that his only hope is crying out for mercy to a holy God that has provided a way for his salvation. A way to be forgiven and be reconciled to that holy God. And that is through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that there's no other way. There is no other way. That's it. And then to call people to believe. To believe in Him. And when you believe in Him, and not just some phony belief, not just some cultural Christianity, but when you truly lay your life before Him, and you say, Lord, I recognize my sinfulness, and I cry out for salvation, and I pray that by Your grace You will transform me, and I will give You my life. Folks, when you really do that, the Lord will transform you, and He will lavish His love upon you. He will change your life and He will save you. Folks, this is the glorious gospel of Christ. This is the message that we are called to preach to all nations. That God might be glorified in the manifestation of His infinite love and His forgiveness. So I'm compelled not only by the Great Commission, but by the reality of hell, to preach the gospel. As old Brother Spurgeon said, and I quote, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. May this be the passion of our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at your word, we are again overwhelmed by the reality of its truths. And we would just pray that by the power of your spirit, we will be obedient to the great commission that you have given us. Lord, although it's very, very difficult in these days of apostasy, Lord, I pray that you will empower us. May we live consistently with the truth that you are the sovereign ruler of the universe, that we obey the Lord of hosts. And that you're going to be with us every day of our life, even until you come again, and even all through eternity. And Lord, finally, I would just cry out to you again that you would press upon the heart of some sinner that might be within the sound of my voice. That you will call them to faith and repentance in Christ. Lord, may today be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth, that they will be transformed not just saved from hell, but saved unto Your glory. We commit them to You. May You have mercy on their souls. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.